That was a section of Hurt Cult, a track from Artificial Happiness Button, the new album by Heroes Are Gang Leaders, a group co-led by saxophonist James Brandon Lewis. That's just one of several projects he's got going. He's got a long-standing trio with bassist Luke Stewart and drummer Warren Trey Crudup, which sometimes also features Anthony Pirog on guitar and Jamie Branch on trumpet. He's also got a duo project with drummer Chad Taylor, which you'll hear something from in a couple of minutes before the interview proper starts. James Brandon Lewis is my guest on this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. Hello, I'm Phil Freeman, and welcome to the Burning Ambulance podcast, which is part of the Osiris Network. If you enjoy the show, I hope you'll consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash burningambulance. It's just $5 a month, and it'll really help us to create more and better content, so become a subscriber if you can. This episode of the show is sponsored by Harry's Men's Grooming Products. Here's the deal, all right? I know you're stuck in the house. Everybody's stuck in the house, except for people who can't do their jobs from home. But even if you're just sitting on your couch all day typing on your laptop like me, that's no reason to look like crap. You're going to be doing web conferences. Maybe you're going to be video chatting with someone you want to find you sexually attractive come that day far in the future when physical contact is allowed again. So you're going to need to groom yourself properly. Plus, your face mask fits better if you don't have facial hair. All the doctors say so. So Harry's sent me a shaving kit to test out. It comes with a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and a trimmer blade and a surprisingly heavy, durable handle. I mean, have you ever written with a really quality fountain pen? If you know how that feels in your hand compared to like a regular ballpoint pen or a gel pen that you buy at Staples, then you'll know what holding a Harry's razor feels like compared to a Gillette or a Bic disposable razor. It really is something you actually have to get used to the first time you use it. Anyway, the kit that I got includes three five-blade heads, a can of shaving gel, and some post-shave balm to soothe your skin afterwards. And I gave it a try, and here's the thing. I'm not a super hairy guy. I only shave once a week on Monday mornings. But I do like a nice smooth face to start the week, and this razor did an amazing job. My face feels like it did in the third grade. It feels like the inside of my forearm. 100% recommendation based on personal use. So join the 10 million people who have tried Harry's. Claim your special trial offer by going to harrys.com burning. Harry's provides quality, durable blades at a fair price, just $2 a blade. They manufacture the blades in their German blade factory that's been honing precision razor blades for a century, so you get incredibly high-quality blades at factory-direct prices. And it's super convenient, especially in these days of home confinement. Blade refills are delivered directly to your front door on your schedule, with or without a subscription and there's a 100% guarantee. So if you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. Also, they set aside 1% of the proceeds for nonprofit organizations devoted to helping provide access to better healthcare for men and veterans. If you're listening to this, you can get a Harry's trial set at harrys.com burning. 
You'll get the weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, a five blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. So go to harrys.com burning to start shaving better today. All right, so James Brandon Lewis. He's from Buffalo, New York, a city which has produced a surprising number of musicians whose work I listen to a lot, including Grover Washington Jr., Charles Gale, Rick James, Dr. Lonnie Smith, the jazz organist, Morton Feldman, and Cannibal Corpse. I've seen James Brandon Lewis perform twice, both times in one way or another with the avant-garde rock trio Harriet Tubman. One time was a straight double bill. James's trio plus Anthony Pirog opened for Tubman. Then, at Winter Jazz Fest one year, Tubman put together an expanded group to perform a reinterpretation of Ornette Coleman's Free Jazz. That night, the lineup was Tubman, Brandon Ross on guitar, Melvin Gibbs on bass, J.T. Lewis on drums, plus James's group with Luke Stewart and Trey Crudup, plus Jamie Branch on trumpet, plus Darius Jones on alto sax. It was fantastic. It was one of those things that you only get to see once in your life. You're either in the room when the magic happens, or you get to hear people tell stories about it for years afterwards. The thing is, though, James's albums are great, too. He made two records for the OK label, Divine Travels in 2012, which had William Parker on bass and Gerald Cleaver on drums, plus poet Thomas Sayers Ellis, who runs Heroes Are Gang Leaders with him. And then in 2015, he did Days of Freeman, which had Jamaladeen Takuma on bass and Rudy Royston on drums. By the way, uh, if you're new to this podcast, a lot of the people that I've mentioned so far, Melvin Gibbs, William Parker, and Jamaladeen Takuma, have all been on in the past. Anyway, James followed Days of Freeman with No Filter, which featured his live trio plus Pirog. And then he made Radiant Imprints, a duo album with drummer Chad Taylor, and an unruly manifesto with the trio plus Pirog and Jamie Branch. And every one of those records is absolutely worth your time, so check them out. We should get into it, though. This conversation with James Brandon Lewis is the longest thing I've ever recorded for this podcast, and it went in a whole bunch of directions that I wasn't expecting. I wrote down about two pages of questions, which is what I always do, and I think I asked three of them. You'll hear what I mean. I mean, he has a lot to say on a variety of issues. This might be one of the most in-depth interviews he's ever done. I'm going to play one more piece of music, which is Under Slash Over the Rainbow from Live in Willisau, which is a brand new duo album featuring Chad Taylor. And right after that, you'll hear my interview with James Brandon Lewis. Thank you. 
How's it going? Good, man. Good. How are you? Hey, maintaining. Yeah. Maintaining. <laughs> That's all we could do, right? <laughs> yeah. You believe the last time I talked to you, you were in a Chinese restaurant? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't happen anymore. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Stuff yeah. is definitely different. <laughs> yeah. Where uh, Where do least. you live in New York? I live in Brooklyn in uh, Sunset Park. Uh huh. What's it like yeah, out there? So, These like, what's the neighborhood like now? Well, I'm currently visiting family, so I've been I've been out for at least like two weeks. So you know, uh, before I left, it was cool. Everything was cool. This is before everything hit uh -huh. really bad. Yeah, I mean, I just I don't I don't know what to make of any of this. You know, I'm still processing even my opinions on on any of it um i don't know what to make of it you know really uh, yeah yeah in general you know i just it's kind of like i mean what is there to say about it other than you know we have to we have to deal with it this is a situation that everyone is finding themselves in and we'll get through it like we've been getting through a lot of different things when, the, when everything first hit no one was saying anything about six feet. Now we have six feet and social distancing. Um, you know, what I've read personally in dealing with pathogens in general, you know, where they can stay in the air for 45 minutes. Now it's longer than that, up to three hours. So I don't necessarily know, like, what I necessarily believe to be the truth in stone. Um, because there's so much uh, disinformation out here. And, uh, you know, we live in a society that wants to say fake news one week and then the next week everything that the news is saying is true. When it's, I mean, it's the play on fear. You know, if I can, you know, if I can, can it's, it's what, it's what some individuals do to control people. You know, if I can get you to be feared, to be fearful of, of living, I'm not saying that that you shouldn't be concerned, but fear is a different thing than mm -hmm. concern. Yeah. If if you're fearful, then that means that you're more receptible to being to being manipulated and being uh, controlled. So, of course, I feel like I'm being responsible, but I also feel like, I mean, I feel like I don't have a choice. Yeah, I mean, because, kind of. I mean, when because, they shut you know, down I mean, society, like, what are you gonna do? Yeah, I mean, they, yeah, they, <laughs> they, I mean, they've. they've shut down society and then there's a lot of um, what, what I find fascinating is that the very people who are complaining about the government at the same time are begging for the government to put more restrictions on us in the name of safety um, without realizing the long term repercussions of when we, whenever we do recover from this and certain laws and certain things have been put into place while the begging was going on, that those restrictions are now permanently in place. Um, the one so thing, I, that, 
the one thing that's that I've been thinking thing about is yeah. the one thing I've been thinking about is you know the things like I've been noticing a lot of sort of social changes you know that people are people are changing things in a way that in response to you know everything that's going on and they're changing them in ways that fall in line with what with things people have been complaining about for decades you know like there's this idea that like you know okay well if you can't pay your rent we won't evict you right away we'll give you a couple of months to work it out you know right and right. you could have done that all along or like right. for example like everybody's working from home now right right six right. months from now or whatever when the boss calls and says okay everybody come back into the office on monday like a right. large number of workers i think are gonna go why my job i did my job just fine from my couch can i keep going like right. why are you gonna make me come back in and wear a tie right when i've been doing the job for six months with no problems right, <laughs> right. and that and then that's gonna be i mean and that's if we even if we we take it to music it's like well why am i going to because it first of all there's going to be uh, it's just it's just going to be a storm of well you know you play these concerts online why do i need to go to a venue and pay xyz because there's still going to be people coming down from the fear of being around people because they don't realize that this thing is being hyped and magnified to such a level and such a degree that even to be around people is going to be an issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, so then how are venues or festivals even going to be able to function? Um, I, so I don't know. I don't, we have no idea what this is going to look like, but I, but I think you're, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, getting people to go back to the workplace is going to be, you know, almost like getting everyone to go back to normal. That's that's a wrap. It's it's never going to be back to normal. It's no, no different than like um, when you think about the airline industry after nine eleven was never the same ever again. Mm -hmm. And um, there was there weren't too many. There were it took them a while to even recover from that. It's going to take them a while to recover from this. Um, and I, you know, I mean. I mean, yeah. I look at it like this. Like, the comparison that I've seen made is, and this is, I mean, you're about a decade younger than me, I think. You're what, mm -hmm. late, th late 30s? Yeah, yeah, I'm 36. Okay, yeah. so I'm 48. So, like, yeah, I don't know if you are, but I had grandparents who lived through the Great Depression. Oh, yeah. And those people, yeah. their minds and the way they thought about everything was changed forever for their entire yep. lives. They would save stuff yep. and hoard oh, stuff man. and, like, you know. Listen, man, my grandmother, I, I recently lost my grandmother uh, over the summer. Mm -hmm. And she, she lived, she was about, like, late 80s. And she lived through the Great Depression. And so... She saved everything, man. She saved coupons. She saved, like, she, she measured all of our food when we were growing up. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like her and my grandfather were poor. She just never forgot that feeling. She yeah. never forgot that specific thing of how hard 
like actual real struggle was that everybody was going through. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and so, how fast it can go away. Exactly. I mean, she saved every nickel. Her, and my grandfather saved every nickel and dime. She reused. She didn't waste food. She hardly ever wasted food. She'd figure out a way to make. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I. I mean, but all my grand. My grandparents. Uh, my parents had me when they were. My mom had me when she was in her thirties. So my grandparents. I, had the privilege of having my grandparents around for a long time. And so uh, I lost my grandfather, one of my grandfathers, a year and a half ago, two years ago. And so, yeah, all of them were in their 80s. So they all went through late 80s. I mean, my grandfather, my mom's dad just turned 89. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they were, the, the amount of stuff I learned from them, like my grandmother used to hand out savings charts to me and my sister and my brother. I'm just like, yo, don't spend anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> or you like pay your bills and then save the rest, you know? Mm-hmm. And they were very, but see the thing, but see also what I noticed from that time period is when they, I think manufacturing was different though. You know, like when they bought quality stuff, it lasted. So yeah. then you didn't have to keep buying. It's not the same anymore in that regard, mm-hmm. which it's like, okay, if I buy a car, there's no way it's going to last 20 years. It's, first of all, it's not, even, it's not even made out of steel. It's not even made out of all steel. It's made out of plastic. It's made out of, you know, certain things, just, they're, they're not built to last. So when, so when they were spending their money, they knew that they were getting quality and could save a lot and could be, like, frugal and not, you know, so I think we're dealing with a completely, we're going to come out of this and it's going to be, I think, I'm assuming, I I think I knew where you were going with the conversation, is that we're going to be dealing with that same thing. However, the quality of goods <laughs> in America with them also eliminating import-export from certain countries, it's not looking good. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> it's, and then on top of that, we've kind of eliminated, we, we eliminated like trade schools haven't been pushed in God knows how long. Mm-hmm. And then you're trying to improve that and get your workforce up again here in the States and all this uh, rhetoric that the president's talking about. Um, it's like, first of all, the amount of uh, xenophobia going on with in regards to China and then the assault on Asians in general, I mean, come on. You know how many products? I mean, this is another thing people are talking about. You know how many products? Like, what are we going to do with all these products? You know, you just you're just cutting off a huge import to America on who's been assembling a lot of these made in China, made in this, assembled in this. I mean, come on. So, I don't know what this is going to look like when we're out of this. Yeah. This is this is not good. No, this is it's... not good, but 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 I will say this, Phil. I also I understand. I would think, in the most humble way, I I not that I'm a knower of all things, because I don't I can't stand people that are like that. But um, I can only speak from my experience. My I can only speak from where I'm my experience, and I will say that. 
I don't know if I want to give my art practice this much attention on this. I'm talking about these topics, you mm. know, if it's, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if you're, if you'll ever hear me utter certain words or certain things related to this current time period, because it's not, it's forced. You know, it's, it's interesting not, you say that because I, I ask a lot of artists about stuff like that, like people from, you know, from William Parker to, you know, all sorts of people. I ask them effectively, what is the polemical value of instrumental music? Right. Because, you know, it's instrumental music, so you can give it any title you want. You can make an album right. that's called you know, I hate Donald right. Trump, and here are 15 reasons why. But when somebody right. listens to it in their living room, maybe to them it's, you know, love-making music. You know, it, right. it, it's not what, you know, it's, it's not that simple. It's never that simple. Unless you're right. literally, like, shouting at the, at the listener, like, you know, Archie Shep or Charles Mingus would do sometimes, you know? Right, right. Right, I understand what you're saying. I think, well, I don't know. I think that sometimes, I think that music, like I, I've been thinking a lot about like Eric Satie and WC and all these people who had a very, like their music, you know, was presented in a, in a way that painted, like literally painted a picture where people were like, wow, you know. I mean, it's the same thing when you think about Shostakovich. I mean, like hell. Stalin was at this motherfucker's house like yo make me a piece and you know to him his music was saying things that I mean or if we take Hitler I mean what was jazz saying that you know it's like the all, music was banned you know so mm -hmm. I think that I think that sound in general can say something that isn't I understand what you're saying, but I also understand what William and them are saying too. You know, I understand from both perspectives because mm -hmm. I'm open to to both ideas. But I think that the music can dictate a type of feeling, which is why when music was being composed for films or whatever, like if you like you you know you think about when they were trying to depict a dream state, right, in a dream, and you hear a specific sound, which is like a whole tone scale. You know, and he's like, wow, you know, and immediately your brain knew without them telling you or verbalizing what the sound dictated. Mm -hmm. Now, somewhere along the lines, we've kind of lost that music to word um, skill set. It's the same thing with, with, with painting. You know, I've been checking out a couple of uh, Paul Clay books and uh, reading like uh, just a lot of people affiliated with the Bauhaus and how how they thought about music. You know, like Paul Clay was, essentially he was a musician first, then he learned uh, visual art. And then he was able to see the happy medium between those two two fields of endeavor where the art, where the painting itself was dictating a certain thing without, without words. And some people were like, wow, man, these people are out to lunch, you know, burn them at the stake, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, it just depends on you know, I think we, we sort of lost touch with the idea of communication being something other than verbal, mm -hmm. you know, um, because I think sometimes when you, when you, 
it's funny you mentioned Mingus. I was just watching that that one. It's not a documentary. It's just him getting kicked out of his apartment. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I was just watching that the other day. I think that, I think, yeah, you have a point. Some people might put that on and say, okay, yeah, I don't feel what they're talking about. I, I hear this. And, and, that, and, 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 and that's also the freedom of music and freedom of any art to interpret the things how you want to interpret it. Uh, same thing with visual art or even some abstract poetry, you know, like my, my, one of my favorite guys is Bob Kaufman or Etheridge Knight or these different kind of people that are not saying things as is. I think that's the beauty of art is to require something from the listener, from the observer. I think somewhere along the lines, we've kind of like, we're, we're in the spoon feeding now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's like I had a conversation with my dad one time and we were discussing things. I love my dad, but you know, I said, uh, respectfully, I said, dad, I, I think you're a lazy listener, you know, because there, there are certain things that I'm trying to communicate and we've been talking all this time and, you know, you should require, I mean, it's, it's, that's tough. I completely understand where you're coming from, but I also think that the listener, the observer is not as in depth as previous generations. You know, is that, you know, if you told someone who's hearing left alone, you know, Archie Shep and, you know, that if you, you know, and that's a Mal Waldron like if you hear that, and you hear that and you hear it played in a certain era, then it might communicate a certain thing. But if you hear that in today's, it's just like, you know, if you listen to some of these, you know, like, like I have nieces and nephews, I don't understand any of the music they're listening to, but it's wrong for me to say that it is communicating something because I'm not, I'm within this era, but I'm not within the age group of how this particular information is being disseminated. See, I, I was so, talking to somebody, uh, I was talking to Casa Overall about that, and we right. were discussing the idea of aging out of hip-hop, that at a certain right. point it becomes music by and for teenagers, and that's fine. Yeah, well, I, what, what you, what you know what's funny, I think that, like, uh, yeah, I don't know if, it's funny because I listen to a lot of of the older generation of hip hop artists who are now in their fifties mm-hmm. and even some of the folks who are like late fifties, you know, uh, and you hear them talk and it, it doesn't sound any different than old school jazz musicians who are like upset with, with, with non, for instance, non-acknowledgement of elders and a lineage and tradition. And so it's, it's interesting how, there's all of these parallels happening and I don't know if you can age out of music. I think that if I spent more time wanting to know my nieces and nephews, I think I could. If I was open to it. If I was open to the idea of them showing me something and I'm showing them something. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of times somewhere intergenerationally, whether or not we're talking about hip hop or even we're talking about jazz. I mean, we're talking about jazz is sort of like it depends on background, it depends on experience, it depends on the idea that have now been broken. I mean, how many young people, like Casa's the exception. Casa has played with the elders. I'm not talking about people like him because 
someone like him, I'm familiar with him. He's familiar with me. I understand the people he's played with, and he respects elders, but he doesn't. But he doesn't necessarily uh, cater to them. You know, it, mm-hmm. his whole. You know what I mean? Like, there's a there's, there's certain people out here who have played with elders, acknowledge them, and give them their due, and respect lineage, and then like the flow of like, you know, the flow of the, of the river. You know, it's like it's like you have the people who who embrace Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie, and then you have people like Benny Goodman who just wasn't with it. You know, they they weren't with. Like, you can read the articles. I mean, there's even Louis Armstrong. You know, so I think each generation, it, it's just a cycle. Each generation always complains about the previous generation. That's just like right now, you know, I know a couple people that are around my age who, you know, and, and I mean, even your age, were complaining about the baby boomer generation. You know, like my mom is 66 years old, mm-hmm. you know, and so like, you know, I'm constantly like, you know, okay, you all are complaining about this president. He's in your generation. Okay, you all have been been fucking up for quite some time, and so like, and now we gotta clean up what you all have been like, you know, a, a, potentially you've been messing up for a really long time, and so these are very fascinating topics, and and like a lot of times when I'm when I think about it's like it doesn't have to be that you and I have a discussion and we have to disagree or be disrespectful. It's like, we can disagree, we can agree, we can come to a happy medium of being okay with that. You know, and it, 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 there's many different, there's many different perspectives. I think that if I'm, but, but then it's like, who gets, who gets the license to say whatever they want to say? Mm-hmm. It's like, I was thinking, you know, it's like, okay, there's a bunch of rabbit holes that I can go down and in the course of a conversation, I can immediately have a position on something that I know that my age, my identity, my race caters to. So then I can always cater to that. Or I could decide in the middle of a conversation, well, you know what? Here's X, Y, Z. People who have been afforded the right to make art or music this way while another group of people you know aren't afforded that same right whatever you know it's like I don't know if I I like to make titles that reference what's going on in my life but they're not overt Mm -hmm. because that's not art to me I like twists and turns that's why I love that's why I love certain poetry I like for it to require some thinking on my part some you know some listening you know some kind of like wow okay what is what does this person mean by this like what does that mean you know what is that what are they trying to communicate with me because that's that's the idea of coded information you know the idea of of slang of of the african-american culture tradition the idea of more morse code you know these things that are coded information it's just like when you're around different uh, different people of different uh, say for instance different class classes or economical backgrounds they have a language that they are communicating with each other 
And my dad always used to tell me, hey, like, and music is the same way. It's like, if I'm around these kind of musicians, okay, eventually, because we played together, we, we all begin to know, and I hate to use this, it's, it's so cliche, the language. <laughs> God, I hate that. But it's like, you know, we just have a way of communicating with each other that we understand mm-hmm. the nuance of it, where it's like, if you're not, I don't think anything changes. The only thing that changes is like the repackaging of it. Yeah. Like yeah. when I talk to my dad about computers, cause my dad used to work for IBM back in the day, like when they first started. And so when I come to him with different computer things, like the idea of a blockchain, he's like, yeah, I know exactly what that is, but we weren't calling it that back when, you know, in the early in the late 70s, early 80s, we weren't calling it that. We were calling it something else. But then the way it's presented, it's like the idea that, like for me personally as well, I will say this because I was thinking about this today. I'm not picking up the horn because I believe everything is undiscovered. I'm picking up the horn hoping everything has it. Mm-hmm. Because what's the point? I might as well pack my shit up and not even play. If yeah. everything's been discovered, stop playing then. Like, why are you playing? That doesn't make any kind of sense to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that at any point, the nuance of who you are individually, I think the new, the new newness is the original originality of self. It's not, you know, like I'm, you know, it's just like, Wow, well, why are you playing that? I can't get with that, you know. And that's why I love. That's why I always keep a foot in both, in both age groups, you know, mm-hmm. elders, my peers. I keep a foot in both because it's important to know. It's important to keep a keep a foot in the present, the past, and the future. Yeah. You know, you gotta you gotta like move around in those where you. You know. It's like I can easily get on the phone with a Darius Jones and at the same time get with somebody like J.D. Allen, who's 10 years older than me, or a lot of people who, you know, Antoine Roney, you know, a lot of these people who I respect who are older than me, but they have something to say. And they have, like, it's just the way I was raised, too. I was just raised that, you know, if a person is older than me, respect them. You don't have to like what they're saying. You don't have to, you don't have to get, but respect them. That's a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody nobody likes to be disrespected. We yeah. can have a difference of opinion. We have a difference of opinion all day, every day. You don't have to like any of my music. I'm cool with that. I'm cool. I'm down with that. Great. You know, uh, and maybe it wasn't for you to like. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, you know, but uh, yeah. So I don't. But that's interesting. That's, that is. I mean, getting back to your original thought. You know, yeah. If someone puts on something and all they have is instrumental music. But I don't know, man. There's been a bunch of people been putting, you know, like, I would, I mean, that's a great book. Rashasa Kovic is the book Testimony, man. He talks about, like, you know, this guy was creating instrumental music, and, you know, when you, when you under Stalin, man, that's a different thing, man, you know, because you're hoping he don't, he don't really hear what you, well, whatever you think your music is about, you're hoping he doesn't hear that. 
<laughs> you know, and that's not saying anything. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you yeah. know what, what was what was Jazz communicating communicating to uh, to Hitler? You know, it's like, wow, man, you banning it. It must be saying something. Wow, it must be communicating on a level that's like, you know, or the same thing like the first time. You know, I was just watching. Um, I watched. I mean, now that we have all this time on our hands, um, I was watching the. Uh, Charlie Hayden documentary the other day, uh-huh. and uh, you know, hearing about how when they when they when they came to the five spot, you know, 1959, it's like, wow, man, this kind of creating music where people are like all up on the stage. Leonard Bernstein got his head near the base, near the base. <laughs> you know, people are threatening and punching and, and, and assaulting or that. It's like, wow, man. So it got to be communicating something is all I'm saying, Bill. It's got to be communicating something, man. You know, if, if, it's, if it's not political, then there would be so many people upset. Why is everybody upset? Why are people still getting upset about music if it's not political? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so many people are getting upset about instrumental music, man. So it's got to be communicating something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, if it was just, if it was all about relationships and and food and I mean well then why is everybody getting upset <laughs> you know yeah. but anyway yeah. so yeah. talk to me a little bit about your style on the horn because from my perspective as a listener uh-huh. I don't hear you as like a super chopsy player you seem to be uh-huh. more like riff based in a way that reminds me of like Shabaka Hutchings or Mats Gustafson uh-huh. or something like that. Like a like you want you seem to be going for impact a lot of the time, especially right. when Luke is playing like electric bass. So right. Well, I think it depends on the musical setting. I think you'd be. I think you would be. For me, I think you'd be pleasantly surprised at my next couple of releases, because number one. If when I think about you know, and, and for the sake of this interview, I, I'll gladly talk about myself, even though that that's not that is, that isn't something that I enjoy doing necessarily thinking about the past too much. But when I think about divine travels, um, or before that moment, you hear many different styles, many different ranges. When I'm playing with Luke and Trey, that's a specific kind of thing. That's a specific thing that I'm thinking about in my head in terms of, uh, um, I mean, you can call it riffing, but I think that there's definitely a kind of, uh, a kind of cadence or different things that I'm thinking about um, that aren't necessarily that specific group, it was definitely about uh, energy, definitely about, uh, I mean, I don't know. I think I think I purpose, I think that like, it just depends on the context of who I'm playing with. You know, I think that, and it depends on the material that I'm playing with. You know, like, if I'm playing with Luke and Trey, there's a specific, I guess you would say hip hop influence, uh, funk, so, uh, yeah, there's some risk, you know. Um, but then, if you listen to me playing with 
William and Gerald on Divine Travels, none of that's riffs. All of that is uh, within the jazz tradition, language, not even, there's barely any funk references, barely anything. And then you fast forward, and, you know, of course, I make Days of Freeman with Jamalini, Kuma, Rudy Royston. All of those compositions were written out, thoroughly thought out. Um, there was 19 tracks on there. Uh, there was... Uh, um, my grandmother was on the interludes, a lot of the interludes for that album, giving little nuggets of wisdom. It was autobiographical, mentioned in the Buffalo Braves. And so then after that, after the, the Sony situation, I wanted to come with something that was in your face. Um, I was reading Hampton Hall's Raise Up Off Me autobiography. Um, a couple of those tracks are I mean, I'm from Buffalo, New York, man. You know, Charles Gill, Grover Washington Jr., Andy DeFranco, Rick James. I mean, a whole Bobby Militello, a whole host of people from a whole various, uh, the Google Dows, of various uh, genres. But basically, I would say Buffalo is a groove, a groove town. Mm. So that's always going to be, that's, gonna, that's always going to be in my plan. But however, I would say that how would I describe my playing? I would definitely say that it just depends on how I'm studying. I study the tradition. I think these next two albums, I have two albums coming out. Um, one is live at Willis Isle with uh, Chad Taylor. Right. Um, we're playing, I mean, you, you're going to be surprised. A lot of people are going to be surprised because it's, because it's, I feel like I'm, I don't want to say in my prime, but I must say that all of what I've been practicing and working on, because, I mean, you got to be able to play the horn to get through Howard University. You got to be able to play at a certain standpoint to be at CalArts and work with Joe LaBarber and Alfonso Johnson and with Don Leo Smith and Vinnie Goldie and all these people. You know, when I was at Howard, that was like the professor there was Charlie Young. He plays, uh, uh, he's the director of Smithsonian Jazz Masterworks, you know, in D.C., and he also is uh, in the Duke Ellington. I think he's the lead also for Duke Ellington uh, Orchestra. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he wasn't playing no games. You had to be able to play the horn. And so I think my sound, um, a lot of long tones. Most people don't know that I studied, first three years I was at Howard, um, I had to study classical so I, I know I knew about Marcel Mule. I knew about 48 A2s for oboe and saxophone, and I was studying. wasn't a huge repertoire for tenor sax in regards to uh, in regards to classical music. But um, so I so I mean I'm you know I've been playing since I was nine. I've, I've been going to music schools and all these kind of things since I was nine. So a lot of the stuff that is informing my playing. Um, I don't know. I just put in the study. I put in the work like anybody who is studying their craft. I know the lineage of players. You know, uh, you know. I borrow things from different people. Mm-hmm. When I think about the low register, I think about Dexter Gordon. When I think about high register, screaming sound, you know, I think about Coltrane. When I think about a mellow, mellow, dark sound, I think about 
Wayne Shorter, when I'm thinking about going off the off the overtones and fundamentals, you know, I think about Charles Gale or Frank Lowe, Frank Wright. When I'm thinking about, you know, it just depends. The craft is so big. There's so many sound painters, man. Mm-hmm. That's why I don't understand. That's why I don't. That's why I don't understand comparative thinking when it comes to music. At a certain point, it's impossible for me to compare a Lee Morgan with a Miles Davis. Right. That's impossible. That's impossible. It's impossible for me to even compare. Like for instance, I respect. I was for the most part I respect everybody who can who's who's attempting to play, you know, this music at a high level. Mm-hmm. I think we're all pushing and striving. And I think the things that Shabaka's doing, we're totally two different players. We're totally two different. The things that Kumasi Washington's doing, totally two different players. John John Arabogan, I love his playing. Um Ingrid, man, Ingrid Lybrook, she's amazing. But we we all have totally different approaches. And same thing with J.D. Allen. I mean, for him to release that ballad album, that's one of the best ballad albums I've heard in years. And I'm only 36, but that ballad album that he came out with, it felt like today with a nod to yesterday. Mm-hmm. But it felt like today. I said, wow, this shit is killing. You know, and so I think that, like, I make sure I mean it's impossible to not be influenced it's impossible but I think I spend a lot of time with myself I think I spend a lot of time on long tones on recording myself on being true to my idea even if it's not a part of the the language Mm -hmm. that I'm okay with I'm okay with sounding different I'm okay with people because they, they haven't been around me my whole experience you know, if you were to if you were to sit down and ask Charlie Young how I sounded, his answer is going to be completely different than what Joe LaBarbera would say. I finished Howard in 2006. In 2010, I got my master's degree. But in today's world, they would give you two different answers. Alfonso Johnson would have a completely different answer. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I'm the best person to ask what my style is. I think that's forever progressing. But I will say that, I will say I thrive on on every album being different. Mm-hmm. I thrive on I thrive on always constantly pushing and being different. The, the album that me and Chad did live in Willisau, I knew the tradition of the players that played there before I came there. So I couldn't play, I, could, I had to step up my game even more so when people hear that album, it's not and it's not coming from a, it's not coming from an ego place. It's coming from a respect place, a tradition. You know, you don't you don't hear you don't hear Dewey Redman and Ed Blackwell and not be phased. You don't hear Rashid Ali with Arthur Rames, you know, doing that double album there at Willisau and not be affected by 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 having respect for the festival and playing at a high level. So you know, and then and then I have another album, a quartet album that's coming out in the fall, with me, Chad, or Juan, and Brad Jones, and that's all written music. It's all um, just totally. I mean, the one thing I will say about my playing is I, I feel like I'm a melodic player, without mm-hmm. a doubt. Whether I'm whether I'm playing free out in or whatever, 
I'm a melodic player. I can't help that. I'm a lyrical player. I can't help that. No matter how hard I try to not be that, I'm that. You know, no matter how many different genres I try to play, even in Heroes of Gang Leaders, for instance, that's a whole other thing. But that gives me the freedom compositionally. I got 12 people that I can write for, you know, and teach that music orally. Whereas Luke and Trey, that's more intimate, that's more funk, that's more my generation. And I don't compartmentalize, but I will adapt my language so that people understand my mindset, you know. You know, I'm not at my home thinking about genres. I'm just at my home practicing certain things, you know. I'm practicing long tones or I'm, I'm practicing. Like, for instance, if someone was to say I wasn't a technical player, well, they ain't really been listening. Because I play large intervals without people knowing it because a part of my, a part of my practice in general is to smooth out the interval. So if I'm playing large intervals and it doesn't sound angular, that doesn't mean it isn't. That means that I'm at home practicing this stuff really slow where you think I'm playing thirds and fours, when really I'm playing sevens, I'm playing eights, I'm going from the low, from the low, low, low end of the horn up to the high, and then you know, so I don't know. I would say my playing is angular. I would say it's soulful. I would say it's in a tradition. I would say it's free in out, whatever it's it, whatever I'm choosing to paint with. You know, uh, you know, it's like. And that's the thing, too. I think that, like, oftentimes musicians don't get the same respect as visual artists or mm. other people of other fields who who get time. You know what I mean? Like, like, when we study artwork, we say, well, this phase of, you know, this phase of the artists, when they were here, you can hear that, you can see that they were developing this, and their drawing was figurative and you know they were doing this and that and now they move from figurative drawing to more abstract concepts and but but hey if their career was 30 years <laughs> we given each we given each uh point of their career 10 years increment and you can see that over time but then like with the musician it's like oh if you weren't like for real, the idea of people sitting around and not respecting the whole body of work of Coltrane as a, like, like that's what I love about art, you know, in this individual art is like you go, you see somebody's retrospective. Mm -hmm. That means that their whole life's work. Whereas like in music, oh, I'm just gonna take this section. I'm gonna ignore this section and I'm gonna ignore this section. Well, well then there's a way to there's a way to approach it that's it, that's interesting because when you, what you're saying made me think of Roscoe Mitchell and right. how many different versions of Nonea he's recorded. Right, right. And so you can take that one piece and kind of see it as a prism that reflects, you know, 50 years of making music. Exactly. And it, you know what? It's interesting that you say this because like I think about, right, exactly. Roscoe Mitchell is a great example, and I also think about how it was beautiful when, when um, the Whitney had Cecil Taylor's work, you mm -hmm. know, like his whole life. And I was like, yes, this is this is what I'm talking about, you know, presenting presenting someone's whole body of work 
it's just like it's just like me having an interview and I'm telling you from the beginning of my life to the end of my life you know it's like hey man this this is this is all of this information is informing anything it's like the player that I am today doesn't say doesn't say that this is the same kid who at Howard University you know Dexter Gordon was my guy Wayne Shorter was my guy and I'm transcribing and I'm learning everybody people be like man I don't hear that in your plan of course you don't you don't hear it now because I'm not I'm not still learning I'm not still not that I'm beyond that but I'm not still in the same learning process anymore mm-hmm. I've, I've gone through the lineage you know where it's like yeah I'll go back to stuff like you know, it's like, okay, you, you're meeting me now. You don't know the depth of my experiences. You don't know the depth of my musical experiences. And so, you know, I think that, that, I just think that that's where, I don't know. I think that that's a hard question for me to answer, but, but I think that like, you know, that's, I mean, just people respecting everyone, everyone's body of work and, you know, a lot of different things inform my playing and my experiences, you know, and every every album, I want everybody, I want every album to be different. Yeah. I, I don't want to keep making the same album. That's boring. Right. For me, that's, that, for me, that's like, okay, I can create a bunch of, you think I'm going to stay in jazz, hip hop for the rest of my life? Nah, no way. That's, that's just but a sliver. I can, I can revisit the sliver, but it's at my choosing. It's not because people, it's not because the audience is digging in and I'm going to keep catering to that. Nah, I want the audience to grow with me. To, to, you know, we we growing together. We, that's what family is, you know. Mm-hmm. Hey, we grow together. I can't, act, like, I can't ask my sister to be the same woman that she was when, when her and I was kids. That, <laughs> no, she, she, she's a mom. She got a job. She got this. She got that. So, nah, it's just different experiences. Yeah, and I gotta roll with that. You know, if that makes sense. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but you know, I'm trying that. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this: I'm curious about because what you were saying about you know your approach and the things that you know that yeah. show up in your sound without people yeah. necessarily cluing into them. Yeah, I feel like Jamie Branch is the same way. Like she knows a tremendous right. amount of shit. And is an right. absolute master of her horn, and right. people don't necessarily catch all of it on the first go round because she doesn't throw it all in your lap. And so right. I'm curious about the way you two work together. Yeah, I think um, you know it's interesting because I think that at the time I was doing um, Unruly Manifesto. And I can't even remember the year I met Jamie, but I think that, like, I will say that the thing that, for me, is inspiring about Jamie um, is her patience. You know, it's very, it's very, very, for me, I will say that's one of the things that I really admire about her playing and, and is, is actually inspiring for me. Yeah, she could definitely play the horn, but the amount of space she played, the amount of space she had between ideas, you can't. That that's that's something else. 
And for me, I I like to fill up the space. I like to fill up the space. That's just who I am. Um, which is which is which is funny because with the with these next two recordings, I think that that that's going to surprise people. Is that like there's space? Um, there's a delicacy that I have. You know where. You know, I'm not shying away from playing a ballad. I'm not shying away from playing up-tempo, you know. And so, working with Jamie, I mean, it's it's fluid. Like, I feel like I can work with anybody, you know. And, you know, that's just a part of, of, of listening and being mature. You know, I think working with her, you know, especially on um, Unruly, it was a great process. I mean, basically, the melodies are just, are just launch pads. There, there's a lot of layering. I like layering. I like layering the melodies. So there's a lot of counterpoint um, where it's just melodies, basically melodies stacked on melodies, mm-hmm. uh, where it gives the sense that, you know, there's certain compositional devices that I explored specifically with this album. If you notice from No Filter to this album, there's still strong melody sense. However, what I chose to do this time around was, okay, I'm going to say this. I got, I got compositionally exhausted after Days of Freeman because I felt like that album specifically did not, in my opinion, get the proper respect it deserved. That was a lot of sheet music. That was a lot of music, period, written. That was a lot of work. And it just and it just kind of got, and so after that, I kind of was just like, okay, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna create launch pads for improvisation. Do you think that really was because I was gonna ask you about this? Do you think that was the label not selling it properly, or was it journalistic laziness, um, or you know? I think it was. I think it was a little bit of both. I also think that it was. You know. I don't want to, you know, I'm not into this. You know, I try to do everything within my power. Mm-hmm. That's one thing about me. No matter what label I'm working with, I try to not put the onus of something succeeding or not succeeding on them. If it wasn't a success, then a part of that's on me. But but, but I will say that I'm not basing my success on monetary sales. That's not at all what I'm talking about. I'm just saying that it was not given a thorough listen. And I think because of because of the digital world, like for instance, the glue for that whole album was the interludes with my grandmother that painted a story that on certain platforms, though you you can't, if, if I'm creating a body of work and you're a track by track person, you're not gonna get the full essence of that album. That's impossible because it all fit like glue. It really did. It all fit like glue. And I'm not just saying this, but... And so it's funny because if as soon as I put a bass, electric bass on the album, what was more... Well, I, it, it was funny because Days of Freeman was actual watching documentaries, working, trying to figure out this hip-hop thing, you know, trying to, you know, trying to figure it out from a, from a real substantive standpoint, you know, digging in, 
hearing nuance, hearing language, even though I grew up with it, but I wasn't like I wasn't like a hip hop head. I'm just I had an older brother, he was listening to it. But all of a sudden all of a sudden Divine Travels is this intellectual amazing album and Days of Freeman because I had a, a bass, electric bass, is not even given the the, 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 the same respect. And, you know, I kind of was just like, okay, why why am I creating a conceptual album when the attention span of whoever's reviewing it is not even there? So I might as well just like create no filter or you know, or create these launch pads for improvisation and just get straight to the point. You, you know? know, it's funny that's because why I interviewed Jamal Adeen yeah. on, on this podcast, and also I oh, just yeah. recently I interviewed Thundercat for The Wire. Right. And oh, okay. people think funk is fucking easy. Yeah. And this, and this is the <laughs> thing that gets on my nerves. They really do. They really do think it's easy, and it's not. It's not at all. Like, Days of Freeman, I'm not even exaggerating. The amount of... First of all, the amount of stuff I was going through in my personal life, just living in New York, moving around to create this album. I was moving a lot. I was just, a whole bunch of stuff was going on in my life. I had been working on that album for like a year and a half. And then so it was just like, to create all these sound, sound palettes, to work with, to work with uh, H Prism, to then write all the music, rehearse, and it's 19 tracks, four chapters, and for people to just pawn it off as, you know, oh, it's a funk record. Nah, you, you didn't listen to it. Mm -hmm. And you didn't even understand the references because if you if you really checked it out, then Bamako Love would mean something to you. If you really checked it out, the epilogue where I extend, I think the last track of the whole, no, the second to last track, I extend, um, one of Tribe Called Quest's tunes where I actually take a melody of theirs that's just the same thing over and over again and I create, I mean whatever I, I could write a book on that album I mean really, I could I could, I could write a book maybe one day I'll write a whole book on just like, because I have all the documentation I got all the sheet music, I got I got all the documentaries that I was watching at the time I got all of these uh, nods to hip hop people Able Souls, Big Planet if you, if you don't know these references, you don't understand where I'm getting these riffs from as a nod rather than a regurgitation, then the album went over your head. If you're not familiar that the Los Angeles Clippers was the Buffalo Braves, we don't need to have a conversation. Because not only are you disrespecting me, you're not even acknowledging the fact that I did some amount of work for this album. I'm not interested in just going in the studio recording tunes, man. Mm. I'm not interested in that. And no disrespect to people who do that. I'm not being disrespectful at all to people who do that. I'm saying that when every time I go in the studio, it means something. I want everything to mean something, from the title to how it's ordered on the track to the way it sounds to the high, the whole idea of interludes was a nod to hip-hop. Think mm -hmm. about how many early 90s hip-hop albums had interludes of information, whether it was good information, bad information, but it was just like storytelling. You know, you hear doors, you hear all kinds of sound design, you know, records playing, people outside, doors opening, all of this stuff was on record. So that was inspiring for me 
to have a conversation with my grandmother. You, if you didn't like anything else, you should at least like the four interludes that have my grandmother on it, telling me how she never really understood. She never really liked jazz. She was more into gospel music. Mm-hmm. You know that that whole album. So, anyways, I don't want to keep reflecting on that, but I think that like when I think about how much work any artist, not just me, let's you get off of me for a sec. The amount of work it takes to go from no album to album, I respect every artist because it's work, man. Mm-hmm. It's not like people are benefiting off of the final product, but they're not benefiting from the process, from even knowing what what, what did it take for this musician, musician to get from this point to the next point. And if you're not asking yourself that, and you only want the enjoyment of it, man, come on, man. That's that's not cool. That's not cool. You should want to understand. It's just like when I was in school, you know, if I'm learning about Bach, Beethoven, or I'm learning about Coltrane, I'm reading these biographies, you know, I want to know everything there is to know about this person. And I think a living artist and people who are alive, that you should want to know their process. You should want to know, what does this title mean? Why did you come up with this? Why are you doing this? Now, granted, I have my moments where a tune doesn't mean anything. It's just a good tune. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. I love those moments. They say, hey, man, what was your idea behind that? Oh, I just love the tune. I liked it. And that's just as valid. I'm serious. That's just as valid as any in-depth concept. You know, that's where I'm at in life. Yeah. Is that, is that, that's where I'm at today. So, all of the albums, whether I'm doing Heroes of Aliens, and No Filter, you know, No Filter was a response. No Filter was also a response. It was it was me on an independent label after dealing with Sony, and you know, like a lotus, you know, coming up, coming up from the water. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, hey, I'm still here. I'm still making it. I'm still making albums. I'm still gonna make quality music. And if, if you notice, it went from James Brown Lewis, James Brown Lewis, and then with no filter, it was James Brown Lewis trio. Now, if people don't realize, once again, when we talk about history, lineage, what that, what that little nuance means, it means that that specific group was a sound, that I was giving a nod that it wasn't just James Brown Lewis in the group. The little nuance, just like when we talk about John Coltrane. Yeah, I'm talking about marketing right now, right? Okay? Mm-hmm. John Coltrane, John Coltrane, John Coltrane. Then one day, bam, John Coltrane, Cortez. Now, your mind immediately goes to McCoy, Alvin, you know? Bam, your mind goes to that place. Jimmy Garrison, your mind goes to that place. Mm-hmm. Or that the one that effect. I always think of is the the Cecil Taylor unit from 1978 right. with Ronald Chan and Jackson on drums exactly. and Cerrone exactly. and... Ramsey Amin and it was exactly. a, it was a band and they made exactly. three four records as a band and then he exactly. broke that band up and was like that exactly. that music is done exactly exactly so that I think that like for me as I progress and you know I like for instance the core of Luke and Trey and with you know Heroes of the Gang Leaders the trio and Unruly you know, building these sounds, developing these sounds is work, you know, it, it, and, and, and it requires you spending time with people and getting to know them. Same thing with with Chad Taylor and I, you know, this will be our second album because we we do, I mean, yes, yeah, a live performance, but, you know, we give a nod to Radiant Imprints, but then we also unveil 
about five new pieces. Mm-hmm. You know, five new pieces in this next record. And so, you know, I think that, you know, I think that just, I work hard enough as we all are working to hope that I am making progress. Yeah. And there's no way for me to judge that because I'm in it. You know, it's like Bill Evans says in his documentary, he says that the lay person knows music, may know music better than the musician because the lay person gets to experience the music. You know, experience the music as a listener, as whereas the musician is in it. They're in it. They're constantly wrestling with it. And the, the lay person is free from that listening, free from that kind of uh, analytical analyzing process of being in it and you know should the music go here and there they're able to enjoy to enjoy it and so from that perspective they get to they get to know the music from a different perspective you know it's, it's like when you're dealing with some with, with anybody and and you say well and then the person says well I know you and you say well yeah you know me but you don't you don't know me, the, the me inside of me. Just like I don't necessarily know the, how you are perceiving me because I'm living within inside my body. I don't know how I appear outside of myself. Mm-hmm. You know, that, and so, and so that, that's the same thing with music. It's like what I feel, it's my hope and desire that I'm being the truest version of myself. And I'm working on that every day to reach that point. Like, I want to be on empty, you know? And like you said about Cecil Taylor and, and, and all of these different groups out here that are building, like, you know, I mean, if you're thinking about, when I think about William Parker, you know, and him working with Rob Brown and Hamid, I mean, these are relationships built over time. Are you thinking about, Hey, you think about Modesty Minor Wood, or you thinking about, you know, whoever you're thinking about, you know, hey, you think about Bramford Marcellus and the groups, the group that he's had now and then before that, whoever you're thinking about, you know, David S. Ware, hey, you know, so they, these were groups. And mm-hmm. I think that, I think that that's, that's something that inspires me that I still want to continue to do, you know, is build relationships with people and continue to play with people that I've been playing with. But also play with new people and continue to grow and, you know, like, you know, I've always wanted to work with Orwan and Chaz and, and, and Brad in this context because I've worked with them individually in different contexts. You know, I met Brad playing with Anthony Coleman. I think I did a Mark Rebo gig with him. You know, I met Orwan. I think I just, when I first moved to New York, I just met Orwan, I think maybe at Arts for Art event or I met him at the Vision Fest. And just like we decided to link up. And then I met Chad. I saw Chad playing with Darius. I think he was either playing with Darius or he was playing with Cooper Moore. But I just, you know, so all of these are relationships that you cultivate. And it makes the music, you know, relationships do make the music, you know, it does make the music click. You know, it's like a moving, it's just a moving organism. It, you know, it, it builds and, uh, you know, but at the same time, I'm always trying to grow and play with new people, and because that that helps too. You yeah. Know, um, you know, so uh, yeah. It's, it's interesting what you're saying about you know the music living and moving because I feel like that's it's not a problem necessarily, but it's 
one of the things that a lot of people don't realize about jazz history is that jazz history is based on recorded documents and a tremendous amount of the music's evolution is not recorded like for example right back in beginning of february i went to the jazz gallery and i saw this group ghidra okay now ghidra was a one-off group it was jd allen stacy dillard and marcus strickland three tenors oh, and, wow. or, and a bassist and a drummer. Now, was that and recent? They were all exploring, and Marcus was talking between pieces, you know, they were talking about exploring the history of the black tenor saxophone tradition, you know? Oh, wow. And mm -hmm. it was a whole thing, but, like, that group's never going to go into the studio. You're never going to get an album out of them. They just exist periodically. They will come together right. when the members are available, you know. Right. And so, if you weren't there, you don't right. get the benefit of what you know, of what they're doing. Right. Or, for example, right. like Darius Jones, you know, who we right. mentioned earlier. Like he hasn't made right. an album in several years because the time isn't right. You know, he's evolving, right. he's working on things. And like the last album right. he made, he didn't play saxophone on it. It was a, a set of vocal works. Yeah. So that, it's that like... Was, that was that was complete. That was... That... I just want to say something about that. Um, I went to the Carnegie Hall when uh, he, he had this group, this vocal group. It was, it was the best, you know... And I was in choirs as a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I had to be in choir because I was at my, my music. My, yeah, I went to perform Buffalo Academy for Visual Performing Arts. Just in sixth grade, we had to go in the choir, and then I sang in choirs in my church. And um, that was some of the best music I've ever heard. That should have been, that should have been, I mean, really, that album should have been uh, up there. He should have been getting awards and funding and I tell people this all the time. It was one of the best vocal pieces I've ever heard in my life. No, it's an amazing I mean, record, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was um, much, much respect for Darius, you know. And I and I've shared these things with him, you know. And yeah, I mean, like you're saying, I mean, there is definitely a lot of. I mean, there's there's a bunch of stuff that isn't necessarily going to be documented, or isn't documented, or that's going on. Which once again gives the importance to. You know, I think a healthy perspective is why why the live rare experience is important. The live experience that isn't going to keep happening. Like if you like like for instance, the one concert that I wish I could have saw. I wish I could have saw Cecil Taylor with Max Roach. Like, mm -hmm. but I wasn't there. I was I was I was <laughs> I wasn't there. I was you know maybe I was in D.C. or I was in California. Maybe I was in Colorado. But that that kind of thing is what makes live music and experience of music special. Is that it isn't going to happen. It isn't going to keep happening. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's the thing. It's like when stuff is on repeat. You know, I think that that's and that's what what's amazing about all of the amazing musicians who end up doing projects and then they're no longer doing that. And then you as a listener, you should miss it. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't need to come back. Right. But you should treasure that missing it. 
because that it means something. It's like it's like when I think about, you know, when I was a kid, there was a specific place that my mom used to take us to near the Buffalo airport. It was this ice cream place. And it doesn't exist anymore. But this ice cream field was amazing. Now it's never coming back. And I'm okay with that. But at the same time, to know what that feeling is, to map that feeling in my soul, like, wow, that was some amazing. That was an amazing experience with my mom, my sister, and my brother. That was an amazing experience to have. Why not just savor and be okay with a great memory? Yeah. I don't need to try to recreate that. And that's the thing with anything that happened any of the great music I've ever heard, and it, which is why, like, for instance, you can hear the, you can hear, like, for instance, you can hear Wadada and the Golden Quartet. You can hear them every year, but every year he's got a new set of music that makes that group sound like it's like, hey, we doing the Ten Freedom Summers. This is it. After this, I move on to the next thing. This the group is still there. But mm-hmm. but 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 even but even that group and you know John Lindbergh's been one of the longstanding members you know it, it's changed personnel a little bit you know for own you know but you know and then you know but I'm just saying like to your point that's what makes a live experience special but if you have you know if you're seeing the same live experience every time then it doesn't really it doesn't give. You know, like people want that thing to tell someone else, hey, man, I heard this. Like you said, hey, I heard these three tenor players tonight. Wow. You know, and then you and then you have a special experience that it's not you bragging, but you have that thing that you go to your friends and be like, yeah, well, on this night. And that's what's amazing. You know, it's like it's like, why do people love sports? Because not just because of the, you know, the competing but it's also about that special thing that's going to happen within that moment, that time, that you can then years from now say to someone you love and care about, hey, on this day, this happened, and it was amazing. Yeah. I wish you could have been there. You and know? I mean, there's there's so many things that I've seen over the years like that were not documented or, did, you know, and Cecil was a big one for that. Like. I went to the knitting factory and he had a, I think it was like a 20 piece band, you know, Stephen Haynes was part of the group, the trumpet player, and he, he helped put it, and William was in it too, and there were like multiple bassists and like, it was, it was seriously like 20 or 21 musicians and him, right and wasn't recorded, they did like four sets of music that was exclusively put together for those two nights. And that was it. Right. You're never going to hear it again. Right. You know, or right. like exactly. at the Vision Festival one year, David Ware played duets with with Rashid Ali. You know, you're never going to hear that again, you know. Wow. Or right. like when Jason Moran's trio did that album with Sam Rivers, you know, I got to see right. that band at the Iridium. And it's like, you know, that's two completely different generations coming together. You right. Know? Right. And that goes back right. to what we were talking to about with, you know, lineages, because right. Jason is a guy who fully embraces jazz history, but oh, yeah. not the history that people usually talk about. Because I talked to him about this right. one time and like he 
he doesn't come out of like McCoy and Keith Jarrett and Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea. He comes out of Jackie Byard and goes back to Fats Waller. Right. You know, he, right. He's a stride guy playing modern music, which, right. you know, he right. plays like James P. Johnson stuff, you know, right. and it's a completely right. different tradition that's not nearly as popular now, but it's a right. completely valid tributary in the Jazz River. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it's, a, it's, it's interesting. I was, I was maybe a couple of months ago. I was just talking to a, a pianist uh, who was mentioning those same things about Jason Moran, and uh, that's interesting. I mean, I think that it's refreshing to hear different experiences and different, and not keep hearing about the same people over and over and over again. You know, and I think that it's quite easy to get into those conversations. You know, like, I think that, like, for instance, a couple, somebody had posted an Arthur, I think the, the first time I heard Arthur Rang, I was like, on, on online, so several years ago. And, um, you know, I, I played some gigs with Melvin Gibbs who knew him and and um, a couple of different people that knew him. Uh-huh. And the first time I heard him, you know, first time I heard recording of him, I cried because that's somebody who who everyone should essentially know, but everyone doesn't know who he is. And um, there's many different examples of many different people who come out of different people. But, hey, I mean, like, is it brought up in conversation? I don't know if it is. You know, it's like, how many times am I necessarily having a conversation where someone asks me, hey, name a sax player that you're influenced by that isn't Coltrane. I've <laughs> never gotten that. I've never gotten that. Ever. Ever. But at the same time, I've spent a considerable time listening to Ward L. Gray, who is not really mentioned that much. Mm-hmm. He's always known as the sax player who's in front of Dexter Gordon <laughs> in that famous photograph. Yeah. But or, or or for instance, I don't hear a lot of piano players talking about Hampton Hollows. Nah, you know, raise up off me. I recommend that book to any pianist because he's actually telling about what really was going on during the bebop era. And how people thought, you know, some people thought Charlie Parker was out to lunch. But you don't get that kind of information going to school. You don't. Because 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 that because Bebop is now uh modern. Uh-huh. You know, it, it, it you know, and, and so like you were saying, I mean, how many people are online, you know, I mean, I don't know what people are doing with their time. I don't want to generalize, but I'm saying that if you're hungry and aware and you want the knowledge, it's out there. And you got to, but you got to keep asking why you can't settle. You know, it's like, it's like for, I go through spurts where I won't listen to sax players. I won't listen to saxophone for months. And then I'll be like, and then I'll pick a like, 
I had got on a uh, I got on a Gene Ammons kick for a while there. I said, wow, man, this cat is amazing. And then I was checking out Arnett Cobb. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm like, wow, Arnett Cobb, the way he can paint sound, you know, because, and this is what I love about people who are really striving for their own sound. That is a thing. But I think that that kind of gets taken away when you go to school, you spend all this money to go to school, to come out of school, having to relearn what you already had before you started school. You already had the, you already had a sound. You already had a conception. But then school can can convince you that you don't. Because you gotta you gotta learn this, you gotta learn that. And you have to end up relearning yourself, man. That's a lot of money wasted. That's a lot of money and I went to school. I can say that. I went to school. I went to a bunch of school. You know, but I but it took me a while to get to a place of, you know, of mapping myself. Mm-hmm. You know, spending time with myself, understanding the nuance. Well, why did I why did I use that note? Why did I use that note combination? Why did I use that in that place? Or why does my sound sound like this? Always asking why. People are afraid to ask why. Because why? Because why exposes why expose what you don't know and then that makes you insecure and then you have to face your insecurities in the practice room and then when you face your insecurities you either choose to keep investigating and asking why and why and why and why and why until you can't ask why no more then you move on to the next thing you know without well, well, a used to tell me that in composition composition lesson if you're not trying to solve a problem when you're composing then why are you composing I don't, no, I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's um, the end all be all, but that's one hell of a statement, mm-hmm. you know. Well, so why are you doing what you're doing? Just enjoyment is the first level. <laughs> Composing or learning your instrument, that's or being happy or falling in love with your instrument, that's just the first level. That's what I that's what I figured out about New York. People always ask me about New York. What do you think about New York? Well, New York tell us how much you. How much you say you love something? It just <laughs> yeah. does, it just does that. It uh-huh. just does that. It just does that naturally. Oh, you oh you love it. Oh, how much? Mm-hmm. Now I'm not saying that that's right. I'm not saying that that's right. But it does ask it does ask you that. That's what I felt like it asked me a bunch. I mean, down to living, down to everything, down to nature. You know, down to oh, you really love it. Okay, how much do you love it? How much do you really love it? Because then, because then once you get past the surface, like, you know, you know, the love notes, I like you, I like you too. And then you get down to like, okay, you're down to your last dollar to get something to eat, you know, and philosophically, you know, New York is asking you, all right, you going to share that last dollar with me and buy me something to eat or you getting it for yourself? You know, and so that's, I mean, that's, you know, music, I've, I've gone through many layers of what it means to love music. Mm-hmm. You know, at a point in my life, music was, I loved it. You know, I loved the sound of it. I loved the feeling that I got when I played my instrument. I loved the exploration. And then at a certain point, I got to the learning part of it okay digging deep and 
what does that mean? You know, what does that mean to transcribe somebody? What does that mean to like know the tradition? What does that mean to, you know, and then, and then you get to a point where you're like, all right, what kind of equipment do I need? You know, to, to love this thing called music. What, what kind of equipment do I need? And then you go through that phase and then you go through the phase where you don't care about your equipment. You just want to get to the sound that you're hearing in your head. So then that's a different kind of love. So then when you get to that love, then, you know, maybe you was using music as an escape from this reality. You know, I went through that part of my life when I, when the music was an escape, you know, but then when, but then, but then when the escape is over with, then what's your next thing? Then you got to dig deep. Then you got to dig even deeper. And so then there's all these layers to knowing and how much do you want to unravel yourself? You know, how, how crazy do you want to get? Because you can get crazy. It's a, it's a matter of a matter of where's the balance in that? How long are you going to be able to keep that? You yeah. Know? And so, I mean, that's what that's what any that's what any art form demands is for you to constantly maintain that curiosity. You know, and because because there's many things that come at that curiosity. Maybe you get successful and then you get complacent. Maybe you get that award that you always wanted and then you stop working as hard. You stop being as thirsty, you stop being, maybe you get everything, maybe, maybe I don't agree with struggling, but I don't disagree with it. Cause maybe that, maybe some people need that. Maybe cause some people need that fire up under them. You know, because then if you achieve in everything, then what's, your, then what's your music sound like? You know, it, mm-hmm. you know, some people then, then, you know, one of my biggest fears when it comes to living life in general is being complacent. Oh man, I don't want to be complacent. I so don't want to be complacent. I don't want to get comfortable. I don't want to get, that's not, now that's not to say I don't want to be stable. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I don't want to be complacent. I don't want to be so far uh, out there that I forget why I'm doing, why I'm studying, why am I studying? I'm studying every day to learn the depth of my soul and experience that requires a level of intimacy that at sometimes is painful because you've got the whole soup in there. You can't just unwrap unravel, unwrap your soul without digging into hurt, pain, sorrow, love, joy. You know, it just requires the, 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 you know, and then on top of that, the level of dedication. Like right now, hey, your dedication level is being challenged. Mm-hmm. And on one end, if you're not focused on music, that could be a good thing. On a, on another on a, on a, on another tip, you could be so focused on music that it might represent a place of being selfish to friends and family and people who are dealing with some things because we're all dealing with the the uncertainty. It's like, well, what are you practicing for when none of us know? When, when the next gig is coming. Yeah. But then exactly. when but then when you but then when you think about I watched a documentary the other day on Robert Johnson. 
well, hey, if I'm coming home from work every day and I'm picking up my stacks or my guitar and there ain't no gigs lined up. And but but then it goes back to the original place that it was when you first started. When I first started playing sax, it wasn't about no gigs, actually. And I, I started on clarinet first. It wasn't about no gigs. I wasn't practicing for no gigs. I was practicing to learn an instrument. And it's funny because now that I'm talking to you now, I kind of like reached another layer of my own psychological and dealing with what I'm currently dealing with. Because I didn't want to, me picking up the horn, now I pride myself to practicing a lot. And I really do. But I didn't feel like it was, it was within my control. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was forced. Well, you're quarantined, so what else is there to do? Nah, I'm not giving, I'm not giving my art practice, you know, I'm not I'm not relinquishing how sacred this is to some forced existence for safety. Nah. No disrespect to nobody dying. I've been losing people, friends friends of mine, dads died and all kinds of stuff because of this stuff. I'm not trying to be insensitive, but I'm saying that if you think that my existence is about because I'm not allowed to come out of my house that I should just be p- picking up the sack, you out to lunch. You are out to lunch. So now I have to repackage my whole thought process when it comes to my instrument. If I pick it up, it has to be because I want to, not because I'm being forced into a situation that I'm not in control of, mm-hmm. which, is a, which is a hell of a psychological thing if you tapped into it like that. Well, I read, people, uh, I read a really interesting uh, quote years ago uh-huh, that stuck uh-huh. with me my whole life, and it means different mm-hmm. things to me at different times. But right. there's a, a German writer, Heinrich von Kleist, who said, mm-hmm. I only write because I cannot stop. Wow. And that's kind of that. how I think about it. You know, I mean, I've been writing since I was Ooh, like a child child. <laughs> that's helping me right now. Thank you. Seriously, no, no joke. That's helping me. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I mean that's how I feel about it. I like I'm, you know, I write for Burning Ambulance like twice a week, even if right. five people read it. I don't give a shit. I'm gonna keep writing because I want to tell people about what I'm hearing and what's good, you know, and whatever. It's like this is important to me, you know. I'm gonna that's keep tight. doing it whether. For, I'm gonna keep doing it till I can't, you know. Right. That's that's that, that's that's deep. And you know what's interesting is that my whole life I felt like that. You know what I mean? But for some reason, this virus thing. You know, it's like I don't know. Has me in a different has me in a different headspace. Mm-hmm. And uh, not to say that I haven't practiced but uh, just this feels different than anything I've ever dealt with my whole life. No, and, it absolutely uh, does. It's really weird. I mean, I've been it, talking about yeah, it with my wife. Like, feels, society is not going to be the same at the end of this. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not. And, and so, like, I, 
you know, trust me. I mean, I, I talk to a lot of different people, a lot of different artists, and you know, a lot of are sh- are struggling with, you know, to have us all. You know, it's like interesting. I've been going in these little rants on my Facebook. You know, hey, I wonder how much Corona art is going to be made out of it. You know, and that's not to disrespect anybody that's doing whatever they feel like they can do to get through this. But for the people who, it's like reaching a point in my life where I'm more of a realist than than I've ever wanted to be, (laughs) Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like, I'm more like, wow, like, people are losing their lives. I don't know where this virus is. Maybe the virus is inside my horn. Like, (laughs) I mean, like, you know, just having all kinds of thoughts that are like, I don't know if it's healthy. I don't know if it's, uh, I think that, like, the beauty and the things that, like, for instance, I've been watching a lot of documentaries, and that's been inspiring me, you know, where I'm, where I'm falling in, in love with the, the kid love of music, you know, Mm -hmm. the kid, the kid, the kid love, you know, where, where, you know, wow, like, you know, they were doing this and they were doing that and, you know, checking out people that I used to check out when I was a kid. And, and that's been keeping the, the, that's been keeping a healthy spirit alive. And then also realizing my work that I was doing before any of this and, and trying to respect that, you know, the work that I'm doing now has nothing to do with this, uh, this current situation. So I have to respect that. And, uh, you know, checking in with friends, checking in with family, you know, um, even, even getting this, even, even getting the idea of having something to look forward to. Like I was looking forward to this interview all week, you know, the level of gratitude, I think what's going to come out of this too. I was thinking about this. I've always been, I'm going to tell you this for a fact. I've never been unthankful of any opportunity I've ever been afforded. You can ask anybody. I play every gig like it's my last gig. You can call it energy. You can call it whatever you want to call it. I play like I'm not going to be playing the next day. Mm-hmm. I make every album like it's my last album. And I think what's going to come out of this for me personally is an even more appreciativeness of opportunities. If anybody wants to, and I tell any young person this, and, I, and, and, and me and my dad talk about this often. One of my, my dad says, I'll call him and I will talk to him. You know, he'll say, I say, well, Dad, you know, certain people, they said this in the interview, they said this, they said that. Whether it was good or bad, he says, son, always remember, at least you're in the conversation. You don't have to be. And I'll never forget that because that, you know, no one has to listen to my music. No one has to listen to anybody's music. Nobody has to call me. Nobody has to call, ask me for interviews. No one has to care. And so you're going to see, in my opinion, whenever we get back to live situations, I think the level of gratefulness is going to be at an all-time high. The level of appreciation to be able to gig, mm-hmm. to be able to, is going to be at an all-time high. That's what I feel like the positives are going to be. 
And then I'm and I, and then I think also what you know it'll it'll go back to I think we might even see a resurgence of people really respecting those people that have come before them in a way that we've never seen before. You know, and so I think it's I think on one end, yes, yeah, a lot of it's a lot of messed up things happening. But on the other other end, you could see a lot of positive things coming out of it. You know, where you say, "Wow, you know, the the, the joy that I feel from these musicians playing." You know, because you know it's like with anything. When you lose it, you're reminded. You know, you're reminded. You're reminded how much, like when you lose a family member, you lose a friend. You're reminded the importance of you know you loving up on the people you know you know mm-hmm. you saying hi you saying thank you you know I think that like I will say this before all of this before all of this corona stuff and uh excuse me for even saying that word cause you know I'm, I'm trying to denounce that joint from my whole vocabulary but <laughs> um before all of this one of the things that I was reflecting on, simple thing that my mom instilled in me when I was a kid, is that you can never say thank you enough. And so every now and then I go out my way to make posts, to pay homage, to say thanks to people that's living, you know, to writers, to fans, to my fellow musicians, thanks, you know? Because mm-hmm. we, this, you know, to be able to say thank you, to send notes to people who inspire me. Like, I'll give an example, because we talk about people that, you know, um, there's so many tenor players out here, so many amazing tenor players that inspire me. And I send them notes, you know, and, it's not, I don't have to get a response back. It's not about that for me. It's about them knowing that I see you and I respect you. Uh-huh. You don't have to like, you don't have to like me. I don't care about that. You know, I don't care if you like my music or not, you know, but I feel like you should give people their flowers while they're living. My mom always says that to me. Give me my flowers when I'm living. Don't give, don't show up, don't show up giving me my flowers when I'm dead. No, give, give them just to me right now. And I remember those things, you know, and so like, I think it's, I think the level of gratitude for music as an art form is going to be higher than we've ever seen it, for real. Now, this is what I feel for sure, without a doubt, without a doubt. The level of gratitude to be able to pick up an instrument and play for anybody is going to be, because this virtual stuff, it's, it's lame, man. It really is. It's why. Mm-hmm. You know, I love the live experience. I love the energy. You know, I love playing for people. I love playing for my peers. I love playing for. I love playing for people, man. Live. You know, this this virtual stuff is getting out of hand. It's just really, it's really getting out of hand. You know, and and I haven't, I haven't quite. I mean, I've I've been debating on whether or not I'm probably end up, you know, trying to give some lessons and stuff like that. 
I've done a couple master classes over the years and different things like that. I don't, I don't have any private students necessarily. Because I always just felt like I'm a student myself, you know. Not that I feel like I can't teach nobody, but I always felt like, well, I'm still learning, you know. Um, but but now I feel like, you know, because um, D.D. Jackson has had me over at schools he's been at, and then I get a couple master classes overseas. And, uh, you know, have a way of relating to, to people where it's more more of a sharing environment than a mastery kind mm. of thing. Let's use mastery for this conversation. You know, in general, that's what people associate with certain things, but more of a sharing experience, you know. Um, I even thought before, the, before all this fiasco, I thought about, um, you know, I think I'm at a time in my life place in my life I'm 36 but you know I've been playing this music since I was nine I left home when I was like 18 19 and I, I, I would like to hopefully go back to uh, you know link up with schools in Buffalo where I'm from uh, reach out to the youth there and, and, and give back you know um, I feel like I feel like I'm at a place of maturity um, to understand from whence I came, and I'm always giving tri- tribute to where I'm from. Um, I think me and you have talked about that briefly over the years, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, just because, you know, it's like, I don't know, I just feel like I'm at a different place in my life, mature, maturity-wise. I feel like, I feel like, I, you know, there, there are young people who want to know certain things, and maybe to them I am not approachable because they see X, Y, and Z, oh, you know, and I, I don't want anybody to feel that way. I want to. I want you to feel like, you know, you can you can send me an email. You can you know you got to you need some advice. You need this. You need that. You know you want to understand music. Uh, you know. You know music as a as a vocation as a as a as a, as a spiritual practice as a philosophy as a you know as an art form. You know. Uh, then I'm into that. You know. Music for utility purposes, uh, I'm not, I, I can't really get with that. But, uh, you know, deeper meaning type stuff, you know. And that's why I've been reading these Paul Clay books, man. He has some great books. He got this one book called Painting and Music. Oh, it's really great. Um, but anyway, I hope that answers your question. You know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. That was my conversation with James Brandon Lewis, and that is the end of this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and if so, I hope you will consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash burningambulance. It's just $5 a month, and it'll really help us to improve the website and the show. So visit patreon.com slash burningambulance and throw us $5 a month if you can. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll come back for the next one.